Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, after the lights go out on Talksport. I'm Steve Harmison. I represented England in 63 tests and 58 one-day internationals and won the Ashes twice with my country. And I'm Liam McKenzie. I've experienced life as both a Premier League footballer and a professional boxer. In this series, we focus on elite athletes and their transition from their sporting careers to civilian life and the struggles which have followed. Both Leon and I have had issues dealing with day-to-day life since departing from the sporting arena. And during this series, we'll be speaking to several sports personalities who've experienced similar battles following their careers in elite sport. Tonight on TalkSport, we're in conversation with one of English rugby's greatest hookers, the 2003 Rugby World Cup winner, Steve Thompson. Steve Thompson with the interception, and England are going to be on the board. Steve Thompson, the replacement hooker. Thompson. Oh, he's got him. the outside, Steve Thompson. Oh, what a beautiful dolly from Steve Thompson. <laughs> Steve Thompson is a Rugby World Cup winner, having been a key member of the England side which lifted the trophy at the 2003 tournament in Australia, the same year England landed the Grand Slam. In total, he won 73 caps for his country and also represented the British and Irish Lions on the 2005 Tour of New Zealand. At club level, he spent the majority of his career with Northampton Saints, Well, today he is a health awareness campaigner following his diagnosis with early onset dementia in 2020. We'll be joined by Steve very shortly and this interview will be unlike anything else we've covered on this programme, Leon, up to now. It's dementia, 40-year-old. Wow. Um, shows the hits that, that rugby have. I've had a sample size of, of what it dementia is. My, my father got diagnosed two, three years ago and we see the frustrations of I see the frustrations of him and how how he goes about his daily life and the family and friends around it. But he's sixty eight now and a World Cup winner who can't remember who's literally his World Cup final being diagnosed with dementia in his forties is is something that we've we've not really sort of thought about covering when it comes to mental health. But this is going to be a great story. I mean definitely Harmi, we haven't covered dementia at all with the episodes that we've done with with former athletes. This uh, is going to be a great insight and what he's got to say, what Steve's got to say 
in terms of how it affects his day-to-day life, his family, dementia, like you said, with your own dad. I'm seeing signs of my own dad uh, going through memory loss and not really being what he once was. And it's quite scary to see it when you see someone that you love truly, I guess really the best way to put it is sort of deteriorating. You know, my dad's 67 coming up as well. So that age, you you can kind of maybe understand with the you know punches to the head and the, the hits that you're getting in rugby. But to be 40 years old and be diagnosed with dementia, I think is is quite hard hitting. So I'm really interested to hear what Steve's got to say. After the lights go out on Talk Sport. Well, let's give a big welcome to tonight's guest on After the Lights Go Out. Here on TalkSport, it's a very good evening to Steve Thompson. How are you doing, Steve? Good I'm evening, good. Steve. Good evening, mate. Steve, you retired from rugby back in December 2011. Just run us through the reasons why you had to call it a day. Um, I injured my neck and it was a totally different injury to the second one. And I'd just signed a new three-year deal. So I was literally moving down to, to London, brought a flat, just got back from the World Cup. And I was just putting my life into place as to think, right, you know, rugby's finishing. You know, I'm going to get into sort of civvy world, as you, you, you say about it. And two weeks into that, I, I got injured again. And that was me finished. So suddenly those plans completely fell apart. But I'd met Steph. Now, she, I met her at the World Cup. Um, she was working over there for Emirates and, uh, at the time. So I literally packed my bags, had my operation, packed my bags and flew out to Dubai. And just thought, I'm just forgetting all the rugby here. And I'm going out there and, you know, I had a few weeks of sort of soul searching and wondering what was going on. But I just had to get away from the rugby world and UK. And, you know, obviously it was great honeymoon period with Steph there and, you know, just seeing a whole new place. Never been to Dubai before. But then suddenly I started losing my way a bit, putting a bit of weight on and thinking, right, you know, I've got to start here. So I used to do a lot of construction before rugby. And then I just got into the construction side of it. And I must have... I didn't struggle too much at first to get into it because it's quite a social sort of side and the construction side, it was something new. And also, my mindset is, when you play rugby and, you know, at the top of the game, when you start again, you're going to have to start at the bottom. Whereas I think a lot of people that come out of sports sometimes, they feel that they deserve to be at the top of the next thing they do and it's like, it's not. You've got to earn your stripes again as such and, and come back into it. The only problem is they put people from sports and and even from the armings, they try and put them in sales roles all the time. They just box them in, like, oh, you're going to be a great sales. And some people aren't, you know, they're not that. Um, so for me, it worked out quite well, and I was learning new aspects of the business in the construction. We had a joinery factory. We were doing all fit-outs, and imagine the construction sides over there is just massive. Yeah. Um, and I was meeting new people, and it was going well for a number of years. had a couple of kids, and, and things were going well. And then suddenly... Yeah, I think it must have been about 214, 215. My memory and everything just started going. And before that, I didn't, I never kept a book as such. I sort of just, I was able to go from meeting to meeting and I knew what my diary was and, and everything. And all of a sudden, you know, I was starting to have a few arguments with Steph about what was going on, you know. And, and I was always saying she was wrong. She still says to this day that I was trying to send her mad, really, because, but it wasn't, it was me. And, you know, it was, it was quite upsetting at the time because I just thought, Everyone else was against me at the time and trying to push me out. And, you know, it's like you said, going from sports, sports very brutal. We we had the saying, you know, stab someone in the belly, not in the back, which I think happens in sport because it's all on TV. You can't lie. You know, stats don't lie, as they say. When you get into 
normal life and go into a normal job, quite a high percentage of people lie <laughs> to try and cover the backside and they try and do as little as possible. When you're used to being like in a an environment where there's so much honesty, everyone's there and they're at the top of the game, they're really trying, to actually step down into somewhere where people are just trying to go from day to day, they clock in, clock out, it, that's quite, that was quite a hard change for me as well. Before I come into cricket, I qualified as a bricklayer, but freezing cold northeast site, you've done it well, you're going to Dubai, I'm on a freezing cold northeast site in the northeast of England, that made me want to continue playing cricket, I must admit, January, February. Um, go back to, obviously, 2011, when you had the, the neck operation, I had a, a minus thing with my back, and whenever you have an operation around sort of neck or back area, there's always something concerning in the back of your mind, whether you have that operation or not, because it's such a delicate place to, to have because obviously the rest of your body can, can be affected. Did you have any doubts of that? I don't want to have that operation or I shouldn't have that operation or it was just needs must? Not really because I was. it happened on the Friday. I was booked in, I think, for the Tuesday and had it done. And it was one of them. They spoke to me and, you know, I speak to Steph about it now because, you know, I'm not too clear about it. So she was saying that when we spoke to the specialist, they were saying that there's three sort of outcomes. Like if we leave it, my arm could shrivel up or it's, you know, it's a high percentage that could happen. Two, it, if we left it as well, it could grow back, but there's a very small percentage that my arm would go go back or, you know, but it's, you know, like I said, there's a good chance that it might get a lot worse or a higher percentage. Or three, have the operation and it will stay how it is now, but you just lose a bit of sensation in it. So I went for that. So like literally the right side of my arm and my legs a bit numb. Um, but it works. Um, so, you know, for me, I, it was sort of a no-brainer as such. And I'm one of these people, I trust the specialists and I trust mm. people. That's what I do. You know, that's, that's what you've got to do. Um, so you, you, the chap, Rick Nelson, he operated on all 2003 front rowers and finished all their careers. He was quietly proud of that, but not proud of it, obviously. But he's the one that fixed us all when we all finished our career. And, you know, he was the best in the business. And... You know, when you go to someone like that, you've just got to say, look, what do you think? And I'll, I'll go with your judgment. You know, that he's got all the experience and, and that's what we've always done all the way through. Yeah, Steve, um, when you say about, you know, like a neck injury, um, I mean, I've had knee injuries and I've had so many injuries. But when you're talking that level of injury, it is a, it is a scary thought. I mean, when I was boxing, I had a few kind of whiplash moments uh, where I've got punched. and And when you say about that, feeling down your arm all my nerve system went and it was like I was terrified literally I was thinking like, well, what's going on because when that doesn't work properly it affects everything so I can't imagine what it was doing for you mentally to cope with those sensations the feelings the the, ner- the when it's the nervous system it's, it's quite a quite a big deal in, it, in itself I think it's well I think you sort of go past that with rugby because you're so battered the whole time. And we, in those days, we were battered. We, you know, we were playing, training physically. Every day, there was some sort of contact, really, mm. going through. You'd have one stroke, two days of rest. The rest of the time, you were literally constantly doing con- contact. You know, so everyone's like, you're on painkillers to get yourself through. You're trying to do everything. And, you know, when you, when you look at that, it's it was just the way it was. You were told, you know, you're never going to feel right. So sort of just get on with it. You know, and you're seeing lads, you know, break legs in games and pop shoulders and, and you're sort of joking about it because it becomes the norm. 
so when you're in that bubble, you know, you think you're sort of invincible as such and you think you're absolutely fine. Even if you do get an injury, sounds weird. As bad as it is, you just think, I'll be fine, I'll get over that. That's not, you know, that's not a problem. And I think, you know, in 2011 when I'd done my neck, I think that was the, you know, like, your body's done now. It's had enough. Let's sort of move on a little bit. Because mm, it was 2007 initially where you, you did retire. So having played another four years, as like you say, the training, the, the games... I mean, do you regret that coming back? Do you know what? I can't really remember much of it. That's the you know, the sort of good thing and the bad thing, really, because it's weird. I can't remember. You know, I moved to France. And I can't remember the actual move and stuff like that. And it's in the book as well. You know, I've had to get Paul Grayson to sort of top that part of the book up because there's there's just no memory of it. I, I can remember sort of a bit being in France, just thinking, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> you know, it's didn't speak French. I didn't. You know, I was, it was bizarre. It's if you sort of wake up from somewhere and. My memory's sort of going back, and I'm trying to think, why did I do it? Why did I do it? But I was just there, and and then suddenly memory just goes again. And it must have been, you know, when I spoke to the specialist, I said, what is going on? You know, what? why is these memories going? And he said, that's just where your brain was so injured. Think of your head as a camera, and in most of your 20s, your camera's switched on, but it's got no SD card. So it's not actually recording what's going in, and that's what's happened. It's sort of the SD card was damaged... So, you know, obviously it seems like you were there and that's when I'd go back and see people of good mates of mine and seen my behaviours in that and they went, it just makes sense. Do you remember childhood memories? Like, I know your memories sort of fading away yeah. in places, but do you feel like there's a form of training that you can do to remember childhood, remember special occasions, you're a World Cup winner? Do you know what I mean? No, if it's, it's either there or it's not. And, you know, I've been speaking to Dawn Astle a lot at the moment you know, Jeff Astle's daughter, and, you know, she's a phenomenal woman, and she sent me this picture of her bookcase, and it goes through the stages of dementia. So you got, you know, you're up to 10-year-old, up to 20-year-old, up to 30-year-old, and there's, like, the shelves of books. And through dementia, it's how they model up. So it tends to be the first rows, because they're so ingrained, they stick there. And that's why it sounds bad when you see older people with dementia and they're going towards the end, mm. they start acting like a child again, or they start remembering and talking about their friends as kids, and they start getting people mixed up because they can't see it. And, you know, that's what's sort of happening. So for me, like, I love... My wife laughs, she's a bit younger than me, but, you know, I, I love Capri cars, I love Cortinas, I love... <laughs> and I'm not a car person, really, but music. Music from the 70s and 80s, I listen to it all the time, my poor kids, and I just love it. And it just makes me feel happy and I get a buzz from it. Whereas any other stuff now comes I just, it doesn't go in. Whereas I can, I was, like I said, I was never into music really as a lad, but I can remember words from then. But I try and remember words now from a song and it just doesn't happen. Leon touched on it before in, in 2007, you retired and then obviously you came, you came back out of, out of retirement. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about the construction, people going in at the bottom after sport and life. And I know. We play sport for for financial gain because that's what we we're good at and that's what we get paid for, is to be the best we possibly can. But when you came out of retirement, we're talking about being regrets. You got back into the England side. I know talking to my old man about his playing days, and he says he would not swap anything for what even for what he's going through now. You see, I'm I'm quite funny with that because you know people say to me and they talk to me and then you know I'll get in people 
contact me on social media and they're asking for advice because they feel like they're going the same, through the same thing. And I listen to some lads, and this is only me personally. People say to me, do you regret playing rugby? Do you think, you know, would, would you do it all again? And I, I say no. Because I get people sit there and go... I feel so sorry for my parents. I feel so sorry for my kids. I feel so... And then suddenly someone goes, would you do that again? They go, oh, I'll do it all over again. It's like, well, you can't be that sorry then. Do you know, I'm quite a black and white person. Like, I'm pretty... That's the way it is. And for me, I wouldn't do it. I'd much rather have a life now with my kids where my kids walk into a room and I recognise my children, mm. but I just don't know their names sometimes. So I'm there and I'm trying to think... And they're just it's just not there. You know, memories of my wife giving birth to them and that, they're going. And I know... I've had them there because my friends will go, oh, no, no, you know, a few years ago, you told me about that and, and what was going on. But now things like that are just gradually going. You know, I can't remember not even being in Australia, let alone because people go, oh, you must sort of remember at least one for the change room. or the, And I'm like, I cannot even remember any of the training, any of the time, just not being there whatsoever. Like, literally, it's just it's just a blank zone. So for me, like, what's the point of doing it all over again just to not have the memories and then have this as well. And I'm putting all this now on my wife and kids. Steve, in November 2020, at the age of 42, you were diagnosed with early onset dementia and suspected CTE. Can you tell us what that period was like, how the news was broken to you, and can you explain, probably explain better than we could, what CTE means and stands for? Yeah, well, don't ask me what it stands for because I still can't say it now. It's... Chronic encephalopathy. Yeah, that's the one you said it. Go there, and you know, I must admit, it was weird because I tell you how it all came. I was working out on the on the sites on the uh, the big aqueducts. Alex Popham, who's been immense throughout all this, you know, I played with him in France, and he's played for Wales, and you know, he's just he's just sort of a superhero when it comes to this stuff. And he phoned me up, and he said, oh, you know, he's talking to me, and then suddenly. He started getting a bit deep and stuff, and I think, well, yeah, what's all this about? Is that is everything all right? And he started to explain to me what he was going through, and he'd been out cycling and he'd forgot where he was, and you know he was getting upset and aggressive. And on the pitch, he was an absolute—I don't know if I can say it—arsehole. But then off the pitch, he was just the nicest bloke you'll ever meet. Everyone loves Alex Pop. He's just one of them. You know, he could just switch on. So, but he started saying he was like having anger issues and and things were happening. But as, he, as I'm listening to him, I'm thinking, he's just explaining me here. And then he said, oh, you should go for some tests. But actually, just before that, I'd done a, a sports talk for Sports Aid at Milton Keynes. And Ben, a good friend of mine that I worked with, he, he was asking the questions I was on stage. And they asked me about the final in 2003. And, the, and I can remember just saying, well, I can't remember any of it. And I thought that was normal. I said, oh, I can't remember any of it. And then suddenly... We've talked about it since, but and it's like the room just went quiet, and everyone's like, "What?" And he said, "What do you mean?" I don't. And I went, "I can't. I can't remember being in Australia." And we came off stage after that, and he's he's a bit like, "That doesn't seem normal." And I said, I said oh, might, "All the lads," because I hadn't spoken to any of them really. I said, "All the lads must be like," because I've been away. And he's, he was like, "No, I don't. Think, I don't think that is normal." And then, like I said, a few weeks later, that happened with Alex Popham. So it was just pure timing, and it started coming together. I spoke to the doctors and they said, look, why don't you come in for the tests? And the initial, because of COVID was going on, all the initial tests were over the phone at first and they give you a pre-diagnosis and they, I was on the phone for about an hour and a half and then they said, oh, we'll get back to you tomorrow with the results. We're going to listen to the recordings, go back through it all. So then I get a message. 
we think that you might have a bit of a problem here. So I was like, okay. So then after that, the doctor had to come around to the house and she was testing me. And one of the tests was 20 words. And it's just normal things like cup, phone, things like that. And then you have to, when she's finished the 20 words, you have to repeat them back to her. And then you go on to another sort of test thing. And then you'll go back to those same 20 words and she'll say them and then you repeat them. They don't have to be in order. You just have to repeat the words. My top score was four or five. And I must admit, that was the moment when it hit me. And I just broke down. I can remember, I just kept apologising to her because I was just, I was just in tears, just thinking I'm in real trouble here. Mm. Because people see me and they, a lot of the time, like my speech and that's good. But like, for instance, today, yesterday I was asleep all afternoon, went to bed early last night, just so I could do, be here today. And it's weird. And then later on tonight, I'll just pass out. And it's just, that's just the tiredness. And I'm learning to sort of manage it. But then going back to the doctor, now I know she had to test Steph and, or speak to Steph. And Steph said, and Steph's nan had just died of de- dementia. And she said to the doctor, it's really weird. It's like he's got dementia, but I know he hasn't because he's too young. And of course, the doctor couldn't say anything. So then that was that stage done. And then I had to wait for a few weeks. And then I had to go and have the scan, the DTI scan down in London. And it's, I don't know, just under two hours scan, I think. But it's one of those MRI machines that you go in. But what they do, they have to screw your face down. So they put a mask on you and then they screw it down. And I don't know if many people have been in an MRI machine. The, the first thing they a say, few to, times. they turn around to you and say, whatever you do, can you not touch the sides? When it's the smallest machine you can see and they try and get someone like me in there, like a small elephant, <laughs> and try not to set the sides. But then my problem is with it, you know, having four young kids, even that is a nice noise to fall asleep to. So I kept falling asleep in this period and they kept waking me up and saying, look, you've got to stay awake. Because you kept moving. Kept moving, flinching. But yeah. then also they're just like, and also you've got to be awake because they want your brain to pulse while you're awake and stuff rather than being asleep so I just kept falling asleep the whole time they kept having to wake me up and then I had to wait for a few weeks for them to put all the results together and then of course we couldn't go into a consultation so we were there and we get a message we'll call you tomorrow morning can be ready for this time blah blah and I just said look I'm sorry in simple terms am I in trouble yes or no and they just messaged back Yes, you are. Like so, it was like, and it's funny because I went and spoke to just like that. Yeah, because that's what I wanted. And then the next day I'll get the results. But I just that was it, and that's how I asked for it. So then the next day we're talking to the specialist, and he was explaining like he sent the scan through, and he's explaining, and there's all like this yellow on the scan, and he was saying, look, this is where the damage is on your brain, and and that. And then my wife Steph turned around, she goes, couldn't someone have this much damage from a one-off incident? And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that before. And she went, oh, right, okay. And he went, no, no, they're dead. They said, if someone gets this much damage in a one-off, and he went, he was on a head-on car collision, they're dead. And this is where they come in about, you were talking about the CTE and things like that. Mm. It's called the sub-concussions, the small knocks that just keep going and going and going. Because like you was concussed a lot of times. Yeah, and it wasn't, it's not even that. It's not when you're fully knocked out concussed. Mm. It's about when you're whacking your head. So... You know, they're talking about the moment about limiting contact to 15 minutes a week for professional sportsmen. We were doing hour and a half on a Monday, two hours on a Tuesday morning, hour in the afternoon. You know, it was just hours and hours of it. 
and then you had the games on top of it as well. So those they they talked about. They think we've done probably about eighty thousand to a hundred thousand sub concussions. And what they've said is your brain has learned to over time with the damage, it's learned to work around it. So you know when we looked at it like that, it was like oh okay, and that's when it sort of started hitting home what's going on. And that's when, you know, when they talk about people with CTE and things like that, it's, they talk about, you know, the personality changing, the anger, the memory and that. It's because it's just slowly just going, going at your brain and it's just slowly killing it off. And that's why it's going on. So you're seeing some of the NFL lads that have had it. Some mm. die within a couple of years and some people can live for 10, 15 years. It's in boxing longer. as well. It's in yeah. boxing. So, no, so, no, <laughs> you know, it was, it was called... Yeah. Um, Oh, I can't remember because I went to see one of the specialists that look at it. And that's when you look at the case and everything like that, they've known for over 100 years because of boxing and things like that. You know, they used to send boxers to a mental asylum. That's right, yeah. Because of it. It's like horrendous. And, you know, so that when they turn around, oh, there's no, there's no evidence out there, there's none of this. It's been out there for 100 years for people to look at. So having said that, do you think rugby could take it more serious than than what the... The results are showing then. They're going to have to now. Simple as that. It's, it's out there, you know, there was a paper that came out saying that, you know, the causation is sub-concussions from contact sports. So that's a, you know, a big thing out there. Like, you know, big question, people say, would you let your kids play rugby? No, I wouldn't at the moment. I love rugby. I'll go down to my junior club. I love the atmosphere down there. The people down there are amazing. You know, you get these coaches on a Sunday morning that aren't even coaching their kids, they're coaching other kids and they're just superb. But now, I think because what we've done over the last eight, we have opened a lot of eyes and people are really starting to be aware of it. And over the last 10, 15 years, I think it's sort of popped up a little bit, but then suddenly it's sort of been able to be pushed away and quieted a little bit, whereas now it's not. So when you, when you look at it like that, I, f- I feel that we are making massive changes and they do seem dramatic to some people. Until mm. you actually see the results of what it's doing to people, you know, then you think, you know, a Dr. Amalu, who's the big one from the film Concussion with Will Smith, and he said, you know, why his kids are working and they're using their brain on a Saturday. There's other kids playing American football and all the contact sports destroying their brain at the same time. And, you know, it's it's horrible to see because I'm one of these people, I want my kids to play sport and be, you know, run around and be happy and enjoy it. But then suddenly now this is coming out, you've got to weigh it up and Do you think, is it worth it? I'm not sure. Steve, you mentioned your kids and and the family and stuff like that. Did they have any indication beforehand that something wasn't quite right with you, whether it was behaviour, whether it was memory, whether it was just simple little things that to say something's not quite right here? And have they spoken to you about that? Yeah, well... I could see, like, I moved away from Dubai because of it, but I didn't know at the time. Mm. Like, my work life just fell apart. Like, I was going into meetings, coming out, and not remembering what went on in that meeting. And then I started missing appointments. I started becoming, like, really sort of antisocial, like, not wanting to go out. Before that, I was sort of going out all the time, seeing people. Even with the family, we'd go out to restaurants and see. Suddenly, I was making excuses and sort of causing arguments with Steph at times, just not to go out and say, oh, God, you're pain in the I can't believe you're and then blaming it on her and you know little bickering between me and Steph like I said then when I was working on the sites I'd go to the van just to get some tools that I needed and suddenly stand there and think what am I here for I can't I just can't remember and it was only like three or four tools and but it just wouldn't be there at all 
Um, but sometimes, you know, you, at the time you start pulling down, oh, this is normal, and you just sort of get on with it. And it's this is where having the diagnosis has helped because when I got the diagnosis, I was relieved at first. I felt a massive of relief, but then I felt um, after that just guilt for a long while. And I'm I must I'm just sort of getting out of that now. Um, when it's like right, I've just got to try and live my life. You know, did I feel sorry for myself for a while? Yeah, I did. And not even for myself, just for the family and just disappointed of what I'm, I've put them through and then suddenly what I'm going to put them through. But then suddenly now it's like, right, you've got to just try and make the best of it. I've gone on to medication now for it, um, which is a massive thing for me because I was always one of these. Like I'll, I'll never be one of those people that need that. And one, I was sort of the old school where you see people that are on medication before, you'd be thinking, it just zombies them out and things like that. So when I spoke to the neuro psychologist he dr gavin he's just been phenomenal he saved my life because i'll be honest with you there's been times when i've been very very close to just walking in front of a train and a couple of times when i was i would have done it i mean when you say a couple of times is is that oh i was, I was doing recent? it i was doing oh. yeah yeah well a few months ago um a few months ago you you, you felt those yeah and wow. and i was just i don't know what stopped me i'll be honest like it was just and I was just right. This is it. And the first time the train had gone past me, it was one of those. Fu- and it gone past, and suddenly I was like, oh. Then it's like I sort of come out of it a bit. And then on the front of my phone, I got my kids on the front of my phone. And I just looked at them. I just thought, what, what's going on? So that's your power. Because I always used to think people that committed suicide as weak. weak. People say that they're selfish to do it, but at that moment, you feel the most selfless person by doing it. You yeah. feel like that. You know, everyone is better off without you. You know, all you're doing is causing problems for everyone. And, you know, you think, you know, it's going to be short-term pain, long-term gain for other people. And that sounds quite an easy thing just to say. But that's how, you know, that's how I felt. I just thought, you know, I always say with this, you know, I want my kids to come and see me, not have to come and see me. You know, and it's, you know, the oldest one's nine, so we've got a few years yet. But, you know, when they're starting to make decisions of going to university, going to work, doing stuff, and then suddenly it's like, oh, well, actually, I can't do that because I need to help stay with mum to help dad and stuff like that I don't want that you know so that's why that's my fight that's you know staying fit doing diets doing stuff trying every little sort of one percent of they say to just keep it going you know I'm doing red light treatment I do the Finair treatment to you know oxygenate myself to try and help with the inflammation and you know it's there's all these little things that, that I can try and I'm doing you know it's one of these whatever someone says look here's a bit of evidence this can help you I'll give it a go because the way I look, I've had my life now, so this next part of my life is for my kids and my wife, and I want to try and be the best sort of me I can in that period of time. And like I said, Dr. Gavin Newby, you know, he's he said to me now, you know, whenever I go out, I spray Steph's perfume on my arm and stuff like that. So whenever I start panicking or start getting anxious about stuff, I just smell it, and it's that the smell of her that sort of brings me back and, like, the pictures on my phone. And it's all these little ways that... I didn't have a clue about. And this is why, you know, with a book, by talking to people, because people say to me, you're so sort of straight and honest about it. It's like, I must admit, I just wanted to hide away. You know, when I finished playing rugby, I went into construction, so I was totally away from anything to do. You know, I played rugby, and that was it. It was a job, and that's what I'd done. And then I moved on. But then now, I even said to Steph, because I met her toward the, well, the end of my career, so she's, she doesn't know any of this, really, with the rugby side. And then suddenly it was like, if we go into the public eye we are going to open ourselves up here and it's like right but she turned around and said, it's the right thing to do 
And at first it was horrendous because we were getting what, like you would, people saying that we were disgusting. They hope the kids got bloody run over because we've killed their kids' dreams and we're trying to destroy rugby. And, you know, I sort of laugh at it now because it was just like, I just couldn't believe, you know. But to see it all change around now and people sort of open their eyes, we know we're doing the right thing. You know, and, and Steph's just my absolute rock. You know, she's just been phenomenal through all this. And the kids have as well, you know. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. After the lights go out, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Steve Thompson on Talk Sport. Steve, you're living today with the early stages of dementia. Could you give us, I guess, uh, an indication of what that's like for you day to day now? Um, it's got better, obviously, at the beginning. I know it was just the frustrations, and you know, I've, like I said, I've been, I've been really lucky that I've been able to work with. Uh, to Gavin Newby, who's just been phenomenal. You know, he's, he's come into my life and saved my life. But then also, he's one of the explanations he said, right, what you've got to understand now is he said, your brain is like a Nokia battery. And if you remember the old Nokia phones, yeah. plug them in for 12 hours <laughs> yeah. and you get about a, a, an hour out of them and then they die. He says, that's your brain now. He said, yeah, you feel young. And, you know, I was, I was getting a lot fitter and, and that again. He said, so you're fit. But he said, mentally and emotionally and your memory, you'll just literally just go and what was happening is I was emptying myself out so much that I'd fall apart my memory would go and that's when I was having like the big episodes of just not wanting to get out of bed and also at the time you know like I said now the medication side of it is you had like the the good angel devil on your shoulder the whole time just literally arguing it felt like and well, just as in to take the medication in my mind just just about life about everything it was just bizarre like what, what was and it that I found that so tiring that I just, I was sort of arguing myself about, you know, doing stuff and just, I was letting everyone down and just, I, I just can't explain it. It was just really tiring. And now I've taken the medication, it's sort of leveled me out. And he said, look, what it'll do, it'll take the top highs out, but it'll take the top lows out. So then you'll just be more level. Balanced. And, you know, that's just been fantastic. And because of that, the Nokia battery, talking about that is, you know, that came about, I'd, I'd done the back garden. All I'd done is cut all the bushes one day and everything. And then the next day, a friend had come around and then I see Dr. Gavin on the Monday and I was talking to him and he said, oh, how's the weekend go? And everything like that. I said, yeah, I, was, I said, just, I felt really tired. So, and then he looked at me and went, 
did you take all weekend to those bushes? And, well, no, I'd done them on Saturday morning. He went, Steve, you can't. And then suddenly he said, was there anything else? And then suddenly Steph was in this sort of the meeting with us. And, and he went, and he said, Sunday, what'd you do? And I said, oh, I didn't see anyone. And she went, yeah, you did. He said, one of your good mates, Simon, came round. And he was around for like a while. And I went, no, there was no memory of him coming to the house. There was nothing. My memory had just shut down, obviously. And it was just like, that had gone. And then also, like I said, I love my cooking. But there's some days when simple things like pancakes for the kids. I'll go to make pancakes and I'll get like the flour out and then suddenly I'm like, I just don't know what else goes into them. So that sort of frustrates me and, and things like that. So now it's all about sort of resting and doing stuff and planning. And, you know, I have just have to plan all my time and all, everything I'm doing that I do get the rest. So I don't empty the battery. So then suddenly I'm not having as many episodes as such, which, you know, when I'm early 40s, I think you shouldn't really be doing but that's just life now so yeah. you know you either turn around and say oh you know it's frustrating or you just get on with it and if anything it sounds weird i'm probably getting more a balance and a better life out of it than i was before education right? yeah, so exactly. it's a form of training isn't it exactly and that's what i say to you know when i speak to people i said look and i'll tell them that that you know an analogy of, of the battery because i found that probably one of the best things that i found like rather than just emptying yourself out all the time just making taking breaks and doing stuff and just making sure that, you know, I'm not emptying myself out and just falling apart. Do you have any recollection of the World Cup and those tournaments? No, I can't, can't even remember being in the country. Can't remember, can't remember going there at all. You know, obviously with the, all this coming out, I've been asked to, to watch it quite often and, you know, I've seen clips of it. It's like I'm watching England now but there's someone like me that's playing there mm. and it doesn't, I don't get any goosebumps. I don't get any emotion. I don't get anything. Whereas I talk about 20 and before when I was playing like under twenties rugby and things like that. Mm. Love it. Love it. So mm. I can remember it, yeah, some of the yeah. games I could do, it. but that after the twenties and that's just, just not there. Just non-existent. It's just bizarre. There's like, no, you know, for the documentary, we, they started asking about my medal and where is, you know, can you show us your medals? And, and I, didn't know where it was. You didn't know where your medal was? I had to phone around my mates and then one of my mates, Simon Heifer, he, he said, oh, I've got a bag in the garage. I said, oh, okay. So I went to his garage and there was a bag of like bits of kit and then also, he said, oh, there's another bag over there. It's like a little black bag. It had my 50th cap in it, which is like this cap, but it's like a metal one that's sort of like all rusty. Then my World Cup medal was in there and my MBE and they were all, they are all just sort of all sort of rusty and they clean and stuff and it was all that's what that's where it was and I didn't have a clue it was in my mate's garage and then um, and there was some shirts I pulled out some shirts and there was one and it was like a cup final shirt for Northampton and I was like did we play in the cup final and it's like yeah against London Irish and it's like on, and I know I played it because I see the shirt but other than that, I didn't know it was like there was no I didn't even know I played in the final oh my god Steve mm. what do you think about that yeah I, I just wondered Steve if you get when you get together with the lads again. If how do they talk through it? Now we won the Ashes in 2005, and a lot of people that I play cricket with, older, younger, always say you guys are different when you sit together. It seems to be a togetherness that you've had that you have still got. Is it like that? How do other players react knowing what you're going through? And does that sometimes weigh on the back of your mind thinking? of negativity or is it positivity when you, you sort of sit and you go through, you know, like remembrance of, you know, good times because we all get these, these little get togethers. 
Yeah, well, we don't really get get-togethers. They're the same sort of lads that stick together. And it's quite funny because I see this... I'm seeing this as an outsider about the like the O3 squad and stuff like that, and it's it's very much it looks like there was only about five six players that won that cup, yeah, and then everyone else just don't exist now, um, and that's what I'm seeing as an outsider, and I see it, so it's it's quite funny, you know, it's the same old same old, which you know I love it because it's easier for me just to hide away from it, but um, you know when you see that it's a bit like well you know they're the ones that are doing everything. And, and they sort of they must see each other and that whereas I see, you know, Lewis Moody, I see him because I played like age group with him and sort of and afterwards, like in two thousand eleven played with him, he was the captain. Ben Cohen, I was really good friends with him at Northampton, my junior club as well. So other than that, I don't really speak to a lot of them. The lads I played at Northampton with, I'm really close with. Yeah. Um, whereas the others I'm not you talk to them and you see them and you have fun, but they're just, just different, really. Just different people, you know. When you work with people, you work with people, don't you? And others, you don't don't as much. And it's just one of those things, I think. And having this as well, you you got to remember, I'm stepping on people's toes by coming out and saying what we're saying. I think some lads who still make a living from from rugby see us perhaps as attacking their livelihood as such mm. in some ways. And some lads have at first fought it and tried to make a bit of a joke of it, and then realised how serious this really is. Um, so suddenly they've they've sort of jumped on and gone right. You know we've got to back this now, and then you've still got to always get some of the old school mentality of, you know, oh, well you know, as they said, we knew what we were getting into. It's like, well, did you? And if you actually ask them, they say, well, no. They're just, and I think they're just saying it just for to try and get a, an argument onto radio or TV. And um, you know, I had I had one of the lads messaging me and messaging me saying that he was worried about himself and you know he wanted to get tested but he was worried what people might think and then two days later going out on radio oh we knew what we were getting into and all this sort of stuff and it was like well you weren't saying that two days ago so I think he must have this if his memory's that bad Steve today you're one of a group of former players bringing legal action against World Rugby the Rugby Football Union and the Welsh Rugby Union what were the reasons behind taking this action? We want change. You know, a number of times this has come over, out over over a number of years and suddenly it's just been pushed back and hidden, really, and then suddenly everything's, nothing's changed. Since we've we brought that action out, you know, it's been 18 months since it was put together, if not longer. Look how many sort of changes have been made. Some changes have been made and then all of a sudden they've sort of been stopped in the background already, some of them, but, you know, for me, it's the education of, of helping people. And for me, it's, like I said, I don't want to stand there and I don't want a lot of lads that are in a lot of trouble to have to stand there with a begging bowl to be looked after when, you know, people need to be held accountable. For us, our part of this is to educate people and help people, you know, try and change the game for the better. You know, at first, people thought we were just out to destroy the game and we just wanted money. Now they've actually, the truth started to come out of how bad this is and how many people, you know, when we first came out, there's three of us. Then there were seven. Now there's nearly 200 that have been confirmed and tested. And there's more. And there's some of these stories that are coming out of people committing suicide on the back of this. Mm. You know, families that are being broken up because of it. It's just horrendous. You know, there's a young lad, Benjamin Robinson, who had a couple of concussions and died on the playing pitch. And I think it was in 2011. You know, there's stories like this that shouldn't happen and shouldn't have happened, and it's only now things are really starting to change. And because of, like, his memory, you know, his mum and his dad are so strong and they've been fighting the cause for so long now. And, you know, I feel like for us to honour 
him, we've got to keep fighting and got to stamp our feet down and make sure there's change. And, you know, that's what we're doing. You know, we don't want to destroy rugby. We want to make it safer. And there are going to be things, you know, do I think tackling at younger age should stop? Yeah, I do. You know, I, re- I really do at the moment. You know, I don't see the point in it when kids can run around and become fitter, really, by running around rather than having contact. I know at first it's a big like, oh, well, we want to do that. You know, that's what we want. It's like rugby's changed completely, you know. And, I, and when I spoke to the, the junior coaches at the, the junior club that I go to, I sort of there opened their eyes to it a little bit, I, I hope, because we were talking and... I said to him, okay, so you, you, their ages, they were coaching, they do touch rugby. And I said, right, in the old days, all the kids used to just run around the one ball and they all used to be tight together and all this now. Even at touch rugby, you go there at seven, seven, eight-year-olds, they're all standing in a defensive line. They're literally, the, the English and the, the communication sound is, take it up take it up, we're going to break the line, we're just going to take it, just short passes and run as hard as you can into the line and we'll break through the line. It's touch rugby, but that's what they're already teaching them. They're not yeah. ta- teaching them the evasives, the hand, you know, the passing, looking for space. The like. It's all about breaking the line. You know, when I was a young kid, that wasn't that wasn't involved in rugby. You know, they didn't do that. People were running around, there was space to run into, there all that. If you go into a rugby team, the first thing that they'll look to shore up is the defence because the old, the old thing is defence wins games and they even said this these coaches that do like under 8 under 9 they're like oh no no we do a lot in 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 defence about our defensive line and sticking together and all this I'm like they're six, seven, eight years old you know, why do they need that they should be enjoying it running again. around and, and that's what they're doing and, yeah. and this is where the game has changed it's become so professional it's like like I said the, the junior first team the men's team they're videoing games now and they're doing stuff, and they're wondering why props are dropping out of it. And I'm, I got caught up in it as well because you think, yeah, that's brilliant. I could look at what they're doing, and I can implement what they're doing. And suddenly, you get these fat old props, bless them, that are on the building site during the week, and they're having a laugh. Suddenly, you imagine in the bar after he's having a few beers, and he's like, oh well, did you see those five, six, seven big hits I put in that big run and all that lot? He'd never done it, but he's just talking a good game in there afterwards. That's what they do, the old big fat boys, don't they? But then now, on a Tuesday night, they've got the game going on TV going, well, no, you did look at your state of you. You're just bumbling around doing nothing. Mm. And suddenly they think, why am I doing this for? Mm. There's no enjoyment for them. There's none, none of that. It's all become professional. And also at that level, you've got a gym lad who just goes to the gym all week to someone that's sat in an office that just wants to have a game. Mm. And this is where people are starting to collide now on the rugby pitch. It's like NFL. They don't have a Saturday afternoon league. You know, they go college, they go through, they're either NFL or they don't do it. Yeah. Uh, just quickly, I know in boxing that, just while we was talking about that subject, I know in boxing, if you get knocked out or get stopped, you can't fight for several months. Um, I don't know if that applies in, in rugby, right? Yeah. So something, you know, I know just, just to touch on it before we wrap up, is yeah. something that's that's important to maybe answer yeah. for Well, it's, it's, it's funny you say that. There's um, the lad, the English hooker, he got knocked out in the final a couple of years ago and there was a British Lions tour going to go on. He got knocked unconscious and they, about a minute he was out, completely out. Come off that match, got on a flight to South Africa mm. and played the following Saturday. Shocking. Shocking. And then he apparently, so he's travelled all that distance. Shocking. So he's had a, a big head trauma, a brain injury. One, you think, should he fly or not? I'm not sure, you know, because you look at that. But then also, he's played the following week and apparently gone through all the past all the protocols. And you're like, how could he, when he's travelling, he's doing all that. 
and then suddenly you I don't mean to talk about boxing I love boxing you see it but even they came out and went he wouldn't have even trained for months no, and if no. you've got boxing saying that yeah. that's where rugby is and you think to yourself that's horrendous and there's so many stories Six Nations summer tours and that where people are still getting hit in the head and they're missing the HIA test they're coming back onto the field there's still a lot to be done and you know by us talking out about it you know that's you know people say about the case and all that like that's to one side mm. you know that team's down to that you know it's in the courts now for us it's about educating people yeah. and opening people's eyes to it and you know just one quick story about it sorry I had someone the other day this gentleman I was walking down the street where I live and he grabbed hold of me and I was a bit like whoa and he went I just want to thank you and I said well, sorry what's that for sir and he said my son got a bang to the head didn't get knocked out he said I didn't really see it and he said one of the school teachers saw it, one of the others didn't, and it was a bit like, he was one of the better players, and they said, no, no, he's fine, he's keeping him on, keep him on. And then the other teacher went, no, take him off. So they took him off, and then, because they took him off, automatically he had to sit out for three weeks now, which has always been around, but people just didn't abide by it, unless you were unconscious and went to hospital, really. Um, so now, he's out for three weeks. He said, two and a half weeks into his stand-down time, he then started showing, like, concussion problems you know he, he said he started feeling a bit dreary he started feeling tired and one of the first things to go is like mathematics at school and stuff mm. and that's why they're starting to talk now they've got these apps that you can sign on to and talk to so the teachers can put on there so things can really be monitored now and there's you know that's this is where the change is coming in and he said i just want to thank you he said because he would have played that second half of that game and probably two other games mm. with a brain injury if yeah. they hadn't and you know it's one of them things it's you know Totally, life-saving yeah. totally yeah. Steve listen honestly it's been it's been fantastic listening to you I thank you so much for coming on me and Harmy have again got got some more education around topics that are, you know affect so many lives um, can't thank you enough Harmy I don't know what your thoughts are no, no, again uh, it's been fascinating to hear I just want to ask one more question Steve who is the most important thing for change here is it the governing body is it the players union is it the players themselves <sighs> It's a it's it's a team effort. It's it's everyone's got to work mm, and open their eyes. And I think yeah, it comes from the top, so it's got to come from the governing body. But then you start to get a buy in from the players, and the players I think are starting to buy in. You know, they're starting to realise now when you know there's lads now that are taking the decision to retire early because they've had a few concussions, and they're starting to think look, this just isn't worth it. So the players are starting to stand up and do it. Now we just need the authorities to put that in place rather than like look at the money side of it and say look let's play more games you know we've got to see and say right we need to look after it you know players aren't just a bit of meat they've got to be looked after and like I said he comes from the top Steve thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure to have you not on on the show but you know keep up the good fight thanks Steve and he's a Norwich fan just and a Norwich fan yeah put it out there <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.